right. Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the leading the world's largest online work- workplace, which is Upworks, and what is the future of work. Today, we have our guest, Gary Swart, joining us. Gary is a tech and healthcare investor at Polaris Partners and a former executive with experience in general management of all size organizations, including le- leading sales, operations, staffing, and overall strategy. Up until April 2014, Gary was the CEO of Odesk, which many of you know today as Upworks, which is the world's largest online workplace. He guided the company to industry leadership and through a merger with Elance while serving as the leading voice for the future of work and the emerging online work industry. Gary's passionate about helping entrepreneurs build their businesses, where he regularly shares knowledge and provides mentorship on how to craft a successful, successful path with fellow business people and anyone building their career. Before AppWork, Gary's career went from entrepreneurial ventures to an executive position at IBM, where his past positions included the VP of Sales and Operations at IntelliBank, Business Unit Executive at IBM, and Director of Corporate Sales at Rational Software. So Gary's an expert in the future of work, fundamentals of management, effective interviewing and staffing methods, uh, and and sales go-to market. So welcome, Gary. Glad to have you on the show today. Hopefully that was a good introduction. Yeah, thanks, Akil. Yeah, I I can't believe I've done all those things. That was <laughs> that's a, a long career for sure. Yeah, super super impressed. Uh, glad that you can be here. Um, so I, I want to talk about a little bit of the on the merger and acquisition, starting with that piece because I know you work with several uh, positions at Pure Software. So you start off in sales, you worked in management, uh, and then also moved into leadership positions. Um, were you involved in the the time of the decision making of the merger with Rationale at the time? Um, I was not involved in the uh, in the decision to merge, but I was involved in the actual merging of the companies. So uh, Pure Software was a successful software development tools company. We went public in the mid-90s. We um, acquired a bunch of other companies and then ultimately merged with Rational, or were acquired by Rational, which was also another uh, public company. So I went through a bunch of different acquisitions, mergers, and then being acquired. And then ultimately, Rational was acquired by IBM. And so while I wasn't involved in the decisions, these were all pretty much surprises to me. You know, you get a call one day or an email that says, uh, hey, we need you to join this call where uh, leadership tells you that you're being acquired or that we're acquiring somebody. Um, But when IBM bought Rational, I was involved on the integration team. So I was an executive responsible for merging our 750 employees into IBM's 130,000 employees. And that was a really great experience to be on that integration team, to be involved in the, the decisions about how to, how to pull um, our 750-person organization into IBMs. Okay. And then do you, do you remember, so I know a lot of founders, their dream is to get acquired by a company like IBM or some of the big firms. Um, do, you, do you know what caught IBM's attention at that time to want to acquire the business rationale at the time? Yeah, well, um, somebody told me once, you know, if you want to be acquired, you have to figure out how you help somebody or hurt somebody, right? So how do you help IBM or how do you hurt IBM? And a lot of companies get acquired because they're a competitive threat and uh, or they have better technology or better people or, uh, you know, it can be any of the above. 
Um, in Rational's case, it was actually very strategic. IBM had four business units, and those business units typically served organizations l- later in the in the cycle. What I mean by that is they were more operational. Once you have a product uh, and a company, you use IBM to help run your business, where Rational was about helping to write software development. So IBM thought by getting involved earlier in the development cycle, they'd already have a relationship with these clients that they could sell more uh, WebSphere and DB2 and Lotus and uh, security and the like, and their other products too later. So it, it got them involved with customers much earlier in the life cycle. That was the, the strategy. Got it. Um, and then you were at IBM when, when that merger happened. You were the business unit executive, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. So I was running a large sales team for, uh, for Rational. And then we combined into a, um, into a, a business unit. And then I was running sales for that business unit. Okay. And then what was the decision at that point of leaving IBM? And I think you joined IntelliBank as the VP of Worldwide Sales. Was it just a better opportunity or what was the thinking there? Well, I, you know, reflecting back, uh, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes in my career, not leaving when I should have, staying when I shouldn't have, et cetera. And I, um, with IBM, I, I actually, as I mentioned earlier, I was involved in the integration and that was a new experience for me. I had never been in, acquired by a 130-person organization and so there was a lot of personal and professional growth and development for, for me. You know, having never been on the superhighway and now have a chance to be on the superhighway, uh, that experience was, was pretty valuable. And I, um, I enjoyed it for about a year, but then I realized that there were some things missing. And I kind of boil it down to these four things. You know, first and foremost is there the opportunity for personal and professional growth and development. Are you on a, is your career path steep? And you want to constantly be, be learning. And so you want to go somewhere where you can, you can be on a, a steep learning curve. Second is, can you make an impact? Are you in a job? Are you in a position? Are you at a company where you can make a difference? Third is financial reward. Are you being paid well for the job you're doing? And are you, do you stand to share in the rewards if the company does well, meaning do you have stock options and are those options uh, potentially going to be meaningful or game changing? And then the fourth thing is balance. And balance is sort of a catch-all for me to um, basically, do you have time to do all the things outside of work that are important to you? And then, of course, you want to be working with great people and hopefully you're doing something you love. And so great people, something you love, Growth and development, impact, financial reward, and balance. And those are my criteria. Okay. And at IBM, I didn't have all of those things. My growth curve was good for a year while I was on that, that um, integration team. But then after that, it kind of flattened out. Now, that doesn't mean IBM isn't great for some people. It is. But for me personally, I felt like I wasn't on a steep enough learning curve. The second is impact. Even though I had a $200 million number at IBM, that was $200 million of $13 billion. It didn't matter if I actually went to work or not. I couldn't steer the ship. I couldn't even get on the bridge of the ship. Right. There's too many people. You can't really make, I couldn't personally make a difference. Uh, financial reward was great. IBM paid very, very well, but I wasn't going to share in the rewards. I didn't own enough of the business. Mm. 
And then the fourth thing on the balance side, I would argue that my balance at IBM was too good. Right? Okay. I that I had two metrics, nine and five, as long as you work from nine to five. And that roll up your sleeves and really grind, um, you, I, I didn't necessarily have to do that because the people around me weren't doing that. Right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not wired that way. I'm wired for speed, not comfort. So that, that was my decision criteria to leave. More growth and development, more impact, and at least a shot at financial reward that was game-changing. And is that what, uh, or at the time, did you feel is that what IntelliBank offered? Maybe check. No, I may have been running from something uh, as opposed to to something. I I probably didn't do enough diligence, but it didn't matter. I had to get IV. I had to to get back into a startup. Um, Mm -hmm. I I often say jungle, dirt road, highway, and I was thirsting to grab some machetes. You know, I wanted to get back in the jungle. And so I would argue that um, IntelliBank may have not been the perfect choice. As a matter of fact, the company was not successful. However, I wouldn't have been eligible to lead Odesk, and I wouldn't have led Odesk as successfully had I not had that IntelliBank experience. Mm. Number one, I wouldn't have been eligible for the job straight out of IBM. I needed to get back into the jungle and operate at that level, not come from an executive position right into running a startup. Makes sense. So after you joined IntelliBank, I believe is that when you decided to join Odesk, were you the founder at the time you built it or did they hire you as the CEO at the time? No, I joined the founding team. So they hired me, um, actually not even as the CEO. I came in in an operations role uh, for about a month and then they ended up giving me the CEO title after after about a month. Okay. So uh, you mentioned one point there where there was the personal growth development. So that first thing, um, how do you find that balance of like not getting too steep? Because I think I see that when I, especially when I was in corporate. So for example, like kind of like an IBM where people go from manager or senior manager, and then they go to VP role and then they just kind of fall off the cliff and, you know, they overshot themselves. Um, how do you keep that, you know, internal compass calibrated to feel confident? So you went maybe from operations and then I don't know if they just offered you CEO and you're like, I'm ready to, to take that personal level, you know, up or was it like, I'll, I'll see what happens. And if I fail, I fail. No, I think that's a really great uh, point. The, the things that I mentioned, great people and something you love aside, but the yeah. balance of growth and development, impact, financial reward, and, and balance, those have to, have to be determined by the individual. Somebody can't prescribe those. Like my criteria can't be your criteria. They may happen right. to be similar or the same, but we have different um, weightings and prioritization of those criteria. and. Unfortunately, sometimes growth and development comes at the expense of balance. You hear people who work 80-hour, 100-hour work weeks. Well, then they have no time for travel or to work out or family or religion or pets or whatever it is that keeps them busy outside of work. And so you have to keep all of these things in check. Some people may take a job for the money despite the fact they're not learning a ton. They say, hey, you know what? I don't love my job. I'm not learning a ton, but they're paying me a fortune. I can never leave because they're paying me too much. Where else am I going to get rep? Where am I going to be able to replicate this? This happens at a lot of big companies that pay so well, people feel like they're hostage there. I had a friend in New York who couldn't leave his job because he didn't know how he was going to afford his lifestyle going to a startup, mm. right? Where the promise of wealth is there in the form of equity, but in compensation, he was going to have to take a significant hit. 
right, right. to go to work every day. And so keeping all of those things in check. Now, your question about growth and development, how do you make sure it's not so steep that you go off the cliff? And I say that, you know, growth happens when you're solving hard problems at a high rate of speed. And my career was built on people tapping me on the shoulder and saying, we need you to take more. And every time I was offered more, I would say, really, you want me to, you, you want me to do that? Like, that's a lot. I don't know if I'm ready for that. And they'd say, oh, you're ready. Get in there and, you know, go, go get it done. And as opposed to having to ask for a job. Mm. So I never actually applied for the job and said, hey, I want this job next. And so I think I thrive more in an environment where it's high growth and people, you're, the company's looking to solve problems and they're going to point to the people who are doing a good job and say, we need you to take more. And I always tell people, put yourself in that position. Do the job before you get the job. Mm. To get, that's how you get um, so the attention. So I tend to thrive. Now, you may get over your skis or you know maybe you operated incredibly well. You're a founder and you've done well in the jungle and even on the dirt road, but you've never operated on the highway. Or maybe you don't even like operating on the highway. And so many founders will get replaced or replace themselves um, uh, many, many times smartly when those situations arrive. Makes sense. Um, so you were at IntelliBank, just before we're getting into more into Odesk. Um, is it true you turned down an offer at Netflix? And was it at that point? And uh, no, was that between like uh, Odesk turned, and, and Netflix? Yeah, and how no, did you I that? turned down... Um, I turned down Netflix very early on. Uh, our company, Pure Atria, so yeah. Pure Software, was a software development tools company. That's the one that went public in the mid-90s. Merged with a company called Atria and became Pure Atria. Okay. Uh, Pure Atria was run by a gentleman by the name of Reed Hastings. Mm -hmm. Reed is now the CEO of Netflix. And the head of marketing at Pure mm -hmm. Atria was a gentleman by the name of Mark Randolph. And Mark... Uh, and Reed co-founded Netflix. Mark was the original CEO. Right. And Mark is a brilliant marketer. He's a fantastic entrepreneur. As a matter of fact, a plug for Mark, he wrote a phenomenal book called uh, That'll Never Work. And it's about founding Netflix. And I highly recommend it. It's one of the best business books. And he's just a fantastic storyteller. And I, uh, I recommend his book to, uh, to a lot of entrepreneurs. I just think it's that, that good. And the story is fantastic. So. Um, Rational acquired Pure Atria. And Mark and Reed, for the next 90 days while the company was getting acquired, were trying to figure out what they were going to do next. And they would drive over the hill from Santa Cruz to uh, Sunnyvale or Santa Clara at the time, uh, each day coming up with ideas about what, what they should do next. So they talk about the idea on the way over to work at Rational. They would research the idea all day, and then they'd head back over the hill to Santa Cruz each night and say, what'd you learn? Here's what I learned. And that's how, that's how and when they came up with the idea for Netflix. And Mark offered me the employee number three at the company, and I just didn't think DVDs in an envelope were a good idea at the time. And I didn't have my criteria clearly defined that I do today. Mm. Growth and development would have been phenomenal. Impact would have been amazing. Financial reward would have been forget about it, right? And, <laughs> and balance, I would have suffered a little bit, but that's okay with me. And the most important thing are the people and do you like the product and what the company's doing? And I, I really like the people. That was probably the biggest mistake I made was not following 
two of the smartest people I know, and passion for movies. Like who doesn't who doesn't love movies, right? So exactly. my criteria weren't clearly defined, which is mm. why I can share them with you today. These are the lessons that I've learned in my career, which is why I try and impart that wisdom on, uh, on wow. people nowadays. So I didn't have clearly defined criteria. Today I did. Got it. So looking back, I mean, if you had that, you probably would have been made a hopefully better decision. No, a different decision. I better enough. I definitely would have. Yeah. You know, but you can't uh, you can't reverse history. And I've had a great career. It's the valuable lessons that you learn from your mistakes that maybe could. And who knows if I would have lasted. That's true. You know, I remember talking to Reed. He's such a class act. A few years ago, saying, "Reed, I really blew it." And he said, "Why? How can you even say that? You've had a great career. You've done phenomenal things." And the early days in the jungle were no cakewalk, as you'll, your, read, your uh, viewers may uh, and listeners may discover if they read the book. Uh, no, no, things are rarely a straight line, and and uh, that's certainly true of, of the Netflix story as well. Awesome. So we'll make a we'll add that sh- that link to the show note for that book. I haven't read it, but I'll, I'll definitely check that out. It's excellent. Uh, yeah. Um, so back to Odesk. Now you are the, you know, you come in as operations, they ask you to become CEO. Um, and then I think Elance was your main competitor at the time. Is that right? Actually, no. In the very no. early days, we were not competitive with Elance. People would mention Elance, but we were doing something different. We were doing time-based work. Mm-hmm. So most people get paid based on the basis of time, right? You work an hour and you get paid X amount of money. You work a day, a week, two weeks, whatever it is. And as long as you deliver good work, you continue to collect the paycheck. And Elance was much more about delivering a fixed price good. It was about how much to build me this widget or to design this website or to give me a logo. And so it was the difference between time-based work and fixed price work. Mm-hmm. And in the early days, we were not doing fixed price work and Elance was not doing time-based work. So we were selling um, work the way that the offline work world works and they were selling uh, fixed price uh, widgets. And so for the first few years, we really did not compete. People thought we were competitive, but clients would pick one or the other based on what whether they wanted time-based or fixed price work. So I want to think from uh, you know our audience, you know, if they're SaaS founders, they're considering this strategy merger or an acquisition. Were you guys, uh, you know, reaching out to Elance and saying, "Hey, let's 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 uh, acquire you"? Was it say, "Let's just kind of a partnership and you know build a, a single entity"? Or did they reach out and uh, you know vice versa? I want, I want to kind of get digging deep there. What happened at that point? Um, well, for a while we were highly com- we weren't competitive at all, and then Odesk. It turns out that time based work is a better business model. And so we rocketed past Elance, despite the fact they started five years earlier. And essentially, we were twice as big. So revenue-wise, we were twice as big as Elance. Now, a lot of people don't know that because Elance had a great brand name and they were around for a while. And then we started offering fixed price, saying, hey, why why not? People come to us. We'll be a one-stop shop. And Elance started offering time-based work. (laughs) So where we used to be two different businesses, like Uber and Lyft were different in the early days too. Now they look very similar. So in the early days, we were we were more dissimilar than alike. But as we started offering fixed price, they started offering time-based work, the company started looking similar. 
And remember earlier, I said time-based work was a better business model. Well, Elance started enjoying the benefits of time-based work. <laughs> Just like Lyft starts enjoying the benefits of rideshare when they get into it like Uber did, right? So right, despite right. the fact that whoever was there first, the businesses started looking similar. And the, as soon as they started looking similar, it gets harder to differentiate your business when you have a competitor. And even though we were further ahead down the road, I used to say that it was like looking in your mirror, you know, in your driver's side mirror, and it says objects are closer than they appear. Yeah. Despite the fact we were ahead on the highway, anything we uh, released, Elance would have in 90 days. Right. Right. So they have the benefit of drafting behind you and just replicating any of our innovation. And um, in addition to that, they started executing uh, much better. And so we went from not being competitive to being highly competitive. Okay. And at that point, I said, you know, one and one just equals three. We really should try and make this happen. And so I reached out to them for about a year. So it was proactively me uh, connecting with Fabio, their CEO, saying we really should put these things together. I think that one and one equal three. And it mm -hmm. took us about a year to convince them to do it. Awesome. That, that's a cool story. Um, and then at that point, uh, I don't know if you guys became Upworks at that point. Or was that after you left in 2014? It was after I left. Akil, one, okay. one thing to note that you'll see a lot of mergers of marketplaces. Like I think Uber and Lyft should have merged. Uber should have acquired Lyft in the early days because now they're more, you know, Lyft has a huge market cap that right. could be all of Uber's. You know, Grubhub and Seamless, two food delivery businesses, uh, Zillow and Trulia, two real estate businesses, uh, HomeAway and VRBO, two bit large uh, rental uh, marketplaces. So you'll see a lot of marketplaces will come together. eBay has done a ton of acquiring in this That's space. So your question was, did, did we, uh, it wasn't originally Upwork. We put the companies together. Mm -hmm. uh, I left, uh, you know, back to my point earlier about Jungle Dirt Road Highway. Turns out I don't love operating on the highway. And, um, and I was not excited about running the combined company, having been through a lot of mergers and acquisitions, as we already discussed. And yeah. Fabio, the CEO of Elance, was excited about uh, okay. operating on the highway. And so we decided that we put the companies together and I would leave, he would stay. And the company, um, he ran the combined company and then later it, uh, it, be, it was Elance Odesk and then it became Upwork. Hmm. Looking back, uh, do you think that was the right decision to make that combination? And do you suggest that for people f in the similar space where, you know, you have a converging competitor and you guys are just chasing each other back and forth and then, uh, you know, overall integration and how that, that kind of played out, let's say in the first year. Um, I don't know how involved you were at that point or was it fully on Fabio's plate? Uh, yeah, I was yeah. not involved. I, I will say that it's not always obvious. Uh, first things first, private to private mergers, acquisitions are really hard. Yeah. They're really hard. You have different cultures, you have different products. You know, I do know that maybe a year after I left, uh, somebody on the inside was cursing me, you know, to me in tongue in cheek way saying, oh, I can't believe what you got us into. Like, this is so hard. They ended up having to rewrite the whole product. They had to merge all of the customers onto one platform. 
it was a heavy lift. It took a lot longer and I think it was a lot harder than anybody anticipated. Mm -hmm. So I would just say that private to private is really hard. Um, And there's a lot of lessons learned there. But the reason why we decided to do it was there was just too many synergies. I know that's Mm -hmm. an overused word, but Truly one and one equal three. We had very over, very little overlap of customers. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like 50% of VLance clients were Odesk clients. It was much lower than that. Uh, we, had a, we had hourly ba- time-based work. We had a much better system for time-based work. We had built a payment platform. Elance had an escrow license. They had built an enterprise product. So truly... Uh, they had more domestic uh, workers and marketplace. We had more international. So when you put them together, you we really sort of rounded out the offering to now have the best time base, the best hourly, the best payment platform, an escrow license, more international. So it really was um, strengthening the overall capability. And then there were a lot, there was a lot of redundancy. You know, you only need one general counsel, one CFO, one head of marketing. Right. We didn't need two VPs of marketing going head to head against one another, not to mention the ad spend, right? The amount of money yeah. that you spend to acquire clients, uh, instead of battling against each other, <laughs> now you, you clear the road and you, you now are not competing against each other. You're competing against others, but with a much, um, a much larger uh, budget as well. So there was just too many synergies to uh, to ignore. Makes sense. Um, before we get into the actual, you know, uh, remote work and kind of what you speak about on the work side, uh, you know, you talked about when you joined Oidesk, it was kind of on an on a upward trajectory. Can you share on, on the growth side, were there any characteristics or growth strategies that you helped implement at that time to make it to at the successful stage it was until you left in 2014? Well, we... Um, I'd like to take credit, but you know we had a fantastic team. We had a team of data scientists. We had a brilliant head of marketing. We had great performance marketers. Uh, we had a great product team. And you know the nice thing about um, a marketplace business like Upwork is that you can tweak the product and see the results very, very quickly. You know, but may, sometimes hourly, sometimes daily, weekly, monthly. But we would constantly make tweaks and changes in our product to improve conversion. And so bringing customers to your website is one thing, getting them to transact is another, and then getting them to come back is is even a third. And I think our head of marketing used to say, let's give people a reason to tell a friend, and then we could give them a way to tell a friend. But cutesy referral and paying and bonuses and all this thing to refer a customer doesn't really work if you don't, if people don't have a reason to tell a friend. So the primary thing that you can do for your customers is to delight them. Okay. Make sure they have a successful outcome. Give them a compelling reason to tell somebody how great you are. Okay. And that was the, uh, the single best thing that we could have done. Uh, 52% of our customers came from other customers. So word of mouth. And word of mouth is free, Right. SEO, SEM, uh, blogs, forums, PR, all of these things cost money. Exactly. The, the best way to get a customer is to create an unbelievable experience such that friends tell friends. And so we paid a lot of attention to Net Promoter Score uh, in order to, uh, to drive that uh, referral business. And did you incentivize them with any bonus or, or compensation for making those referrals? And do you think that helped? Or was it just... 
you know, focusing on the user experience, getting the NPS score, uh, you know, to like a nine or 10, and then just f- taking that feedback until you can get it up. And then it just naturally happened. Yeah, the best thing you can do is let it naturally happen. What we found was the paid acquisition where we said we did have a program where I think we paid uh, maybe it was like $50 for a verified credit card. So in other words, if I got you to sign up and you verified your credit card, whether or not you spent a dollar, that we would pay me because I referred you $50. And we found that those conversions were not as the, the conversion and the dollars spent on that traffic was not nearly as high as the high net promoter score. So you end up with a lot of gamesmanship there. Like for example, I could go, um, I could go, I could go to my friends and say, Hey, if you sign up on this website and put in your credit card, I'm going to make $50. I'll split it with you. Exactly. Right. And that's 25 bucks to you and 25 bucks to me. And you don't even have to spend a dollar. And so you end up with a lot of gamesmanship where you have to, and then you put fraud detection in place and everything else. And at the end of the day, you find it's just not even worth it. Just give people a delightful experience and they'll, they'll tell people how great you are. Exactly. And did you uh, ask them at that point? We say, hey, so you, you gave me a nine, you gave me a 10. Uh, here's a share link. Would you mind sharing with other people so they get the same experience? Or did it just kind of, hey, they just told their friend, hey, you know, join Upwork. We, we did. Okay. But again, back to our VP of marketing, he said, give people a reason and then let's worry about the share link. Okay. Okay. First things first, let's give people a reason. Then we, we did have share uh, your results, share the jobs, share the provider. Like a, there was a lot of goodwill. It's almost like um, I call it share the nanny. It's like if you, um, I don't know if you have kids or childcare is an issue, but here in the San Francisco Bay Area, nannies are, uh, are, are childcare is, is prized. And if you only need two or three days a week, you don't want your nanny to go find someone else, another family that's going to want five days. So you would rather share so you have the, the benefit of splitting with somebody who you know and trust. And we saw a lot of that. People felt they wanted to reward their developer. They loved them so much. They wanted to give them uh, f- friends. They wanted to share the worker. And we saw a lot of, a lot of that on the uh, platform. Smart, makes sense. Um, so you talk a lot about this and are highly recognized for it in this space. And your shirt is you know, branding it. Where do you see the future of work? Can you speak a little bit about that? To be clear, I thought this was audio only and I just worked out and came with my workout gear. So this happened to be uh, serendipitous that I, I wore this. <laughs> also the reason for uh, not, not having showered. So in the times of COVID, I think we can get away with it. Sure. Um, so the question is, uh, future of work. Where do you see that? Yeah. So obviously, I was way too early, and it took a pandemic to get uh, the world to recognize that remote work is uh, is feasible. And uh, so for the for the future, I think that uh, some portion of work will remain remote, far more than was before. Now, I think a lot will snap back. People will go back into an office. People will work on premise. But more work will be done remotely uh, going forward, not 100% and not zero, but uh, somewhere more than, than what was. Um, in addition to that, you know, work's going to become more global. If, if you can work from anywhere, why not workers more globally? It'll be more on demand, so less employees, more hiring uh, for specialties when you need them. It'll be more flexible. 
Um, definitely more remote. And, and then I think there's three other things about work in general. You know, we're seeing that work is becoming more augmented. So you and I are speaking via Zoom, which wasn't even thing. I mean, yes, there's been video conferencing forever, but now Zoom is like the way we work. And so uh, there'll be plenty of tools and technologies that'll augment our work to make sure that we can be as effective as possible. Uh, work will be more um, uh, will be more automated. So not only augmented, but a lot of work will be automated. Um, such that humans don't have to to do as much. And then I also think work will be atomized. It's going to be broken into smaller chunks, more manageable chunks. And you may go to work for more than one client doing the same job as opposed to one client and doing Hmm. one job. So one client may not need you for 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week, which will afford you to have the flexibility to go work with multiple clients doing your specialty. So more atomized, more augmented, and more automated in addition to remote, global, on-demand, flexible, uh, et cetera. All right. So that's on the employee side. Now on the employer side, as a SaaS founder, now moving to this, shifting their team to remote base, maybe they're going to go to that permanent route. Uh, I want to hear kind of your experience. What has shaped uh, your hiring decisions now for top talent? And what are kind of your main criteria or rules that you've developed? I know you have the four rules for applying or, or moving to another role. What's the other way around? What do you look for in, in talent? Yeah. So um, the, the first two things are the same. First and foremost, if you're thinking of going to work at your SaaS company, who are the people and can I really get excited about the product, mm. right? Uh, so first and foremost, it's about the people and can I get excited about the product? And then it's, it's, um, it's the same four things. I care about impact. I care about growth and development. I care about financial reward and I care about balance. Okay. And so I want to go work in an opportunity that's going to provide me those things. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to ask me what's important to you, I would say these are the things that are important to me. I want to grow and develop. I want to, I want to solve hard problems. I want to learn more than I know how to do today. So I may not have all the skills that you need today, but I'm somebody who wants to learn and that's going to keep me excited. Right. And I want impact. I want to go somewhere where I know I can make a big difference. And even better if the company is making a difference on the world. Mm. Right. If I feel like the company is doing something meaningful, which is one of the reasons I'm at Polaris Partners. You know, Polaris is a venture capital firm. We invest in healthcare and life science companies. And the the mission of doing well by doing good is really exciting to me. Right. It's we can do well for our investors and for ourselves by doing good for the world. Yeah. That's that that's meaningful to me. So impact, it's not only can I make a difference for Polaris, my partners and our limited partners, but can I can we make a difference in the world? And that that is uh, is part of the reason I decided to take this. And then of course of course financial reward and balance are still important to me, which is why I'm I'm doing this job. So for the individual. I say, list your criteria, define your criteria, prioritize your criteria, and be prepared to answer those in an interview. Because mm-hmm. anybody that came in and did that successfully with me, I'd want to hire them, right? right because they right. clearly thought about it and could, art- could articulate. So just to get deeper into that, so you can, you can control two of those, right? So you say, okay, we're going to pay 
a great salary. We're going to give you stock options. That's from yourself as the employer. You can give them well, well work balance. Say, okay, you can work from home. You can work wherever you want. And then you, how do you test the other two when you're trying to interview and, and attract that talent? So, okay, we're going to give you good pay. We're going to give you remote, uh, you know, remote uh, work. And then how are you assessing their their will, their motivation, the the eagerness to learn other than, you know, kind of a conversation? And then also like, you know, matching up to where they won't fall off that cliff. And you know, it's that balance that they're at the right stage that they can come in and so run with I, it. To clarify, you want to know as a SaaS employer, how do you ensure? So for the employer, uh, the, the employer, I have some other criteria. Let's hear that. Okay. One. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so if you're the employer, what do you want to know? Well, you want to know, do they have the skill? Mm-hmm. The skills, yeah. right? So if you're hiring a, a a financial controller, well, they have to have a, they have to have the skills, right? You have to know that they've controlled before. Do they have the knowledge? So do they have a CPA degree? Have they worked in SaaS businesses? Um, you know, if you're a SaaS business and you're, do they have domain expertise? Uh, you know, for Odesk, did they, are they coming from eBay or have they worked at another marketplace company or do they have a labor or talent experience? And then there's the motivation, right? What's the motivation of the employee that you're hiring? What do they want to do in life? What do they want out of this job, out of this career? What, where do they want to go? Like, what's important for that? And then the fourth thing is the personal characteristics. Who is mm-hmm. this person? So you got personal characteristics, motivation, skill, and knowledge. That's the criteria you as a SaaS founder should be using to hire people. And I would argue that the most important thing in there are the personal characteristics. Because those are the things that you can't change. And in this environment, if somebody's going to be working remotely, you need people that are hardworking, smart, motivated, competitive. They have to have drive. Because there's so many distractions, it's so easy to say, I'm going to go work out, I'm going to go for a bike ride, I'm going for a hike, I'm going to go fix the garage. Like, There's too many distractions in the home. You need people that are self-motivated and that have uh, the desire to work hard. They're wired for speed, not comfort. And so you can't teach those things. So if you don't hire with somebody with those characteristics in the first place, they're never going to have them. You can't teach smart. And so I encourage you to prioritize personal characteristics, motivation, skill, and knowledge. Now, there's certain levels of skill and knowledge to get in the game. You're not going to hire a a CFO who doesn't have a CPA degree. That's table stakes. But are they smart, strategic, hardworking, and do they, can they get excited, the motivation piece, can they get excited about the job that you're offering and waking up every morning and doing this job, not for the next 90 days, but for the next nine years, right? And so interviewing for personal characteristics and motivation over skill and knowledge is my advice. Makes sense. So look for that hunger inside, right? Define what the personal characteristics are that are important to you and your culture, and then interview the candidates for those and make sure that there's a match. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one quick way that I do that. I would often ask a candidate, I would say, um, what would your boss say about you? Or 
what would your previous boss say about you? What adjectives would they use to describe you? And so if I asked you that question, what adjectives would your previous boss use to describe you? Your mindset now is to get into the, the frame of mind of your previous boss and say, gee, what, they, what would they say? And it's hard to BS because I could always call your previous boss and ask him. That's right. Or her. And so you tend to get good answers. And if though the answers that you were to give me right now are not aligned with the ones that I've defined that I'm looking for in my culture, if there's not high overlap of those, then you don't have them, right? But if you say the exact ones that align with me, and for me, it's, it's smart, hardworking, high integrity, um, creative, problem solver, like if these are the words that are coming out of your mouth, we're, we're high alignment. So uh, nice. that's just one, one good way to, to assess that. Should be in every interview. Absolutely. That's a fantastic question. I never thought about that, but I'm definitely going to use that. And I recommend everyone to try that. Yeah. Let me know how it works out for Thanks. you. Sure, I will. So you're now an investor and partner at Polaris Partners. I think they have the, the LS Polaris, Polaris Innovation Fund. They have the growth fund. And then you said the, the main fund. Um, what are the partners investing in now? And what trends are you guys seeing in your deal flow during, say, the last six months during the, the crisis or changes? Yeah, um, surprisingly, we're seeing amazing deal flow. There's lots of okay. innovation happening, lots of companies raising money. Um, there's lots of people uh, who are, you know, who are maybe on the sidelines saying, now's the time, right? Now now is my time to, to come up with something. So we're seeing a lot of volume. Things are taking a little bit longer. We are seeing prices, but not for everything, but for some things, um, uh, slightly depressed. But uh, for the most part, okay. it's, it's business as usual. Uh, the trends that we're seeing are, we're seeing a lot around uh, healthcare. Uh, so, you know, we've always invested in uh, wet science, life sciences, uh, things like CRISPR, which is gene editing and platforms for developing uh, uh, drugs were, were heavily invested there. And we're also seeing a lot on the healthcare uh, technology side. So anything to make healthcare uh, more accessible, more affordable, uh, more operationally uh, successful. It's, um, as you know, there's a lot of inefficiency in healthcare. And so leveraging data to make better decisions or to um, to help improve uh, overall health. We're, we're doing a lot and seeing a lot there. And are you guys uh, more of a VC fund or because I also saw you have your growth equity fund where you're buying minority shares. And if so, you know, what kind of valuations are you guys typically paying or for these technology and healthcare companies, if you can share that? Yeah, the, the growth fund is separate. We have a, a team, a growth team that basically uh, looks to um, not necessarily for minority stake, but majority stake in, in businesses. Okay. So it's almost like early private equity. These are businesses that are, you know, sub 10 million in revenue, but they're profitable. They're, uh, they've taken very little money to date. And so our growth team, I think, does a really nice job of finding um, undervalued assets and then creating a playbook to combine those assets with others and then ultimately sell those to larger private equity firms. So these are more like... Um, uh, early private equity deals. That's our growth team. Our LSPIF 
uh, is an innovation fund uh, typically investing in the seed stage or earlier stages of companies. And we started that because in the main fund, we weren't doing seed and we saw too many opportunities uh, coming out of MIT and Harvard on the life science side that we were passing on because it was too early for our main fund. So we dedicate a separate fund for, for that. Uh, very, very successful. And then our main fund, um, uh, we typically invest A or B round, um, focus primarily on healthcare, healthcare tech, and some pure tech, but it has to be exceptional. Um, yeah, so typically A and B round of, uh, of companies. Okay. Um, and then aside from capital, I see you guys have like an operational team. Are you involved in that? What do you guys, like what kind of value do you guys provide to the team and what's the strategy or playbook, if, if any, or is that just on the growth side? Yeah, well, we're called Polaris Partners for a reason. One, because, you know, we're partners with ourselves, right? With our LPs, with our, with our companies. Um, we're all former operators. We're operators, we're scientists, we're, uh, we've been in their shoes and so we pay, we place a lot of weight on adding value to entrepreneurs beyond the investment. And everybody plays every role. We we all source deals. We we you have to win a deal if you're uh, if it's competitive. And then the the fun starts. Then you roll up your sleeves and add operational expertise uh, to the companies where they need it. But because we've been operators, we're we we think we're good board members. And I think our entrepreneurs would say the same thing. We know how to ride in the car and not grab the wheel. Um, And we bring diverse experience. So for example, you know, I ran a company, my partner, Dave ran a company. Um, Many of our partners have run companies. Many of our, um, our team members have been um, executives in very large companies. My partner, Amy was general counsel at Pfizer and then ran the consumer business unit at, at Pfizer. So that's that's a huge job. My partner, Darren, uh, ran um, corporate strategy at Eli Lilly. And so these are people that have been on big pharma side where a lot of our companies are operating. They, uh, they want big pharma as customers. Maybe they want to be acquired by big pharma. And so they can bring a whole different set of value. But Amy's never run a, a tech startup. Neither is Darren. And so... What we think that we do as a team is bring this breadth of experience where we can all lean in and be passengers in this car. And we'll just tap on, the, the entrepreneur can tap on the resource that they need at that specific time uh, for, for the most value. And I, so I think it's a true uh, partnership. It doesn't matter who does the deal or whose name is on a deal. What matters is, uh, is the company successful? Do we add value in that journey and do you return capital to your limited partners while making a difference for the world. For sure. So right now, would you say your day-to-day is more, you know, a combination of sourcing deals, uh, reviewing deals, and then you're also speaking with the, the entrepreneurs and getting a little more hands-on operationally into the portfolio companies or? Absolutely. Yeah. I talk to my entrepreneurs uh, at least weekly, uh, most okay. of them, um, uh, some more than others. And some I'm playing uh, more of a hands-on role uh, and some 
need me to just be a passenger and every once in a while, uh, you know, look at the map or change the, change the dial on the, the, the music or adjust the air conditioning so they can keep both hands on the wheel. And so some, uh, you're more involved, you're changing tires and uh, tuning the engine and others, you're, you're just being a good uh, co-pilot, you know, not from the back seat, from the front seat, but not, grab, not grabbing the wheel. Sure, let them drive it. Um, so I know a lot of founders, they, they love strategy specific you know, habits they like to form to, you know, I think that's kind of a trend where people want to improve their habits that compound to be, you know, more effective as uh, leaders or investors. Do you have any specific habits that you follow, whether in the morning or at night that you think has uh, led you to become a more effective leader investor today? Maybe just some general guidance there. Um, Mm. One of the things that Reed told me was, uh, Reed Hastings said, 90% of CEOs are under-focused and 10% I'm sorry, under-focused and 10% are over-focused and neither is good. Okay. And so recognizing, are you under-focused or over-focused? I was under-focused. I was always an and guy. We can do this and that. And the problem with that is you end up, especially as founders, you can, you can, you've heard the saying, uh, most startups die of indigestion, not starvation. Mm. So you try and do too much and not focus narrowly enough. And so, um, recognizing that you need to uh, focus, uh, you need to make sure that you're tackling one hill, owning that hill, and being able to claim why it's uh, your hill, I think is uh, is paramount. And then if you don't have that skill, you need to surround yourself with people on the team that do have that skill. And so one of the best things you can do as a founder is just make sure that you're hiring and that you're surrounded by the very best people. Right. Awesome. And so a majority of your job should be spent recruiting. I would often ask my um, I often ask my CEOs, where are you spending your time? What are the top five activities you're doing on a daily basis? And what percentage of time are you doing each? Mm. And recruiting has to be in there. Mm. So, um, you know, you're responsible for setting the direction of the company, making sure there's clarity as to where the company's going and how it'll get there. And then making sure that you have the right people in the right seats with clearly defined roles and responsibilities and measurements in order to to achieve that uh, that that mission. Nice. So uh, just write down ABR, right? Always be recruiting and just look at that every day. Yes. I think you should be okay. I think so. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, so last question, on, and specifically about your 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 portfolio. What company are you most excited about for 2020 in your existing portfolio? Uh, you know, in health tech, because I know you guys are looking to make an impact and, you know, provide for your own kind of satisfaction as well. You know, I, I love all of my children the same. <laughs> That's a good uh, answer. I, I'll tell you, I'm really excited about, you know, everybody in their own special way. I, um, you know, there's some companies that are doing phenomenally well uh, during uh, COVID, some not as well, but they've done an amazing job of cutting expenses, uh, you know, um, maintaining their uh, their churn, not not uh, allowing customers to churn or enabling customers to churn, and so I think everybody's done a really nice job uh, in this environment. And then I am excited about a couple of our new investments. Um, you know, companies who are uh, you know uh, providing services around mental health, right? Which I think is obviously with just all that going on in the world, not only with COVID, but with, um, uh, you know, just with 
what's going on around us every day, I, um, I, I see the, the growing category of mental health being more important than ever. And so just making sure it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's high quality. And so we're excited about some of our investments there. We're excited about um, uh, the use of da- data um, in, in enabling better healthcare. And so we're involved in a couple of companies that are um, that are thriving in that regard, not only on discovering drugs, but in hospitals and helping them make better decisions about uh, about how to serve patients better while um, while saving money. And so there's so much data that exists that's not being leveraged properly. Uh, and so we're in a couple of companies that provide these actionable insights. Um, too, there's too, too much opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, to be excited. Awesome. Uh, anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Any parting thoughts before we wrap this up? You know, we talked about so much. I think I packaged, um, you know, twenty years of lessons into forty-five minutes here, and so yeah. uh, I, I would just end on, um, you know, don't squander these moments. This is a real opportunity to uh, learn and to be conscious of. Uh, what's going on around, even the hard stuff. Like we talked earlier about my experience at IntelliBank. And while the company wasn't successful, yeah, it was only a year of my life, 12, 14, 16 months of my life. And I, I wouldn't have been eligible. And I definitely wouldn't have done the same job had I not had that experience. Mm-hmm. And so don't squander these moments. Uh, this is all part of your education. And I say that to your entrepreneurs experience is what you get when you don't get all the other things you want. And so uh, don't, don't squander this experience. It's going to be invaluable later in life. Wow. Uh, Gary, where can our audience get in touch with you if they want to learn more of what you're working on? Uh, the best way is probably LinkedIn. I, I do a lot of uh, blogging there. I actually just wrote a post about uh, perfecting your pitch. Cool. So uh, what, what to put in the pitch in order to attract my attention or uh, <laughs> I think a disorganized way to get um, to make sure that you're setting yourself up for success with investors. Nice. So I'm Gary Swart at, uh, at LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you, Gary. And for those of you who are looking to possibly pitch Gary, definitely check that out before. And so you have your chance there. Um, thank you so much, Gary. This was absolutely awesome. Very, very helpful for our audience. And thanks again. Take care. Thanks, Akil. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you all for listening in to today's episode. Don't forget to join us for another episode where we interview top leaders and experts in the business and SaaS industry. If you enjoyed this episode, I ask that you please give us a five-star review on iTunes. That would be really, really appreciated. Otherwise, if you have any feedback, suggestions, or improvements for this podcast, please feel free to send it directly to me on our website at horizoncapital.com. Or you can just tweet me at Akil Jabbar. Thanks again, and hope to see you guys on the next episode.